Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Hey, El, it's Elizabeth. Listen, I have a really good workout for you. I've been really trying to do some different things, including just like Carla Hall, the hula hoop. And I got a kettlebell, but I got these wooden swords and it's such a good workout. I want to talk to you about it. Um, I was going to just say a little yoga goes a long way in this world. So uh, can you meet me in the walk-in? Today, one of the most powerful women I know is stepping into the walk-in with me. Chef Elizabeth Faulkner inspires me. She has been a leader in the culinary world for over 20 years. Chef Faulkner owned two successful restaurants in the San Francisco Bay Area, Citizen Cake and Orson. She's written books and appeared on competition cooking shows like Chopped and Iron Chef America. Now she's working on a memoir, which I cannot wait to read. She's also producing a documentary. I could go on and on listing Chef Faulkner's achievements, but I'd rather hear the full story from her. Let's step into the walk-in. Okay, so you know when you have arrived, when the people that you have admired from afar, probably on the other side of your television screen, are at some point actually sitting in your face. And that is my exact experience with Chef Elizabeth Faulkner. (laughs) She laughs, but it's very true. You know, like most people who are in the food world, a lot of us got our first real introduction to food through culinary media. Nine times out of 10, it was probably Food Network. And if you were a home cook, this is no diss to the home cook. You probably liked Rachel Ray's show or Barefoot Contessa or things like that. But if you had a desire somewhere in your soul or felt like somewhere in your body lived an inner restaurant chef, you watch shows like Iron Chef and Chopped. You know, probably more lately than not, a lot of our Chopped participants have been more well-known chef celebs, as people call them. And that was me. I definitely had like an inner line cook in me and I was, and so (laughs) the higher chef resonated with me. And so just thinking about the first few times in life where I saw women really like hammering it out in the kitchen in the way that we were only told men could do, it was a life-changing moment. 
And for me, I think that's what made you a celebrity to me. And so with just that little bit of information, I just want to introduce you all to someone who I admire a great deal. I love so, so much. A really great friend and leader and comrade. Chef Elizabeth Faulkner, thank you for stepping into the walk-in with me. Oh my God, Elle, I'm so excited to be in the walk-in with you. (laughs) We have a lot of things to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) That is why we go in here. Uh That's the whole reason we're here. Let's close this door and let's get to it. FIFO, first in, first out. I want to go into our very first segment of the walk-in, which is called FIFO. What is FIFO, Chef? Wait, I forgot. (laughs) <laughs> You're the first chef to ever admit it. It's, I'm going to I'm give you the first two. You got to give me the last two. First in. Oh, first out. There we go. Okay. okay yeah. So FIFO is really just an opportunity for you to tell us first who you are, where you come from, a little bit about your growing up. And then we're going to quickly fast forward into what you're doing now, what you've done in the past, and give us a quick from day Born day to today. Okay. So um, I grew up in Southern California, mostly. My dad's an art professor. My mom's a dietitian. I never thought about being a chef while I was growing up. Because my dad's an art, an abstract painter, I grew up going to museums and galleries all the time. And so I was just kind of going down that path. And I went to um, where my dad used to be a professor at Pepperdine University. I went there for a couple of years, went to um, Europe for a year through Pepperdine. And then that's where everything food-wise started shifting for me because I started tasting so many great things in Europe. I came back um, to the United States after a year there. Well, I went to UCLA for a semester, but then I went to San Francisco and decided to go to San Francisco Art Institute. Mm -hmm. I graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in experimental film. And I was already falling in love with the restaurant scene in the Bay Area because it was like a revolution going on Um, between Chez Panisse and Zuni Cafe and so many, Cindy Paulson, Nancy Oakes, Barbara Tropp, Joyce Goldstein, they all had restaurants. They were all doing cool food. I was like being totally educated through the foods and the agriculture, more so than ever growing up in LA. And then so I, you know, my final film in school, I required people to drink espresso and eat chocolate covered raspberry sorbet bonbons that I had made as part of the film. Mm. And then after I graduated, I did some stuff on the side. I catered um, mostly as a server. I didn't want to be a server, but I tried it for a minute. And then um, I finally got a job at a little bistro called Cafe Claude. It was a French bistro where we had live jazz and all French waiters. It started as a dishwasher, nighttime plater, and I became the chef two months later. Wow. And then from there, I started staging some great restaurants in San Francisco, including Masa's and Cypress Club with Mary Check and um, a couple other places. But I... Ended up getting a job in pastry at Masa's, which was like mm-hmm. La Bernadette of New York at the time. I mean, it was like that between that and Fleur de Lis, they were the two best French restaurants in the city. And mm-hmm. I felt like I needed that foundation. Like I th- had thought about going to culinary school, but I really got it from working under Julian Serrano and a great pastry chef, Alicia Toyoka. I wanted to work more in savory, but there wasn't an opening. So I moved over to a restaurant where Tracy Desjardins was the um, chef de cuisine at a restaurant in Japantown called Elka. And my job was to make brunch for everybody the next morning after their hangover from the gala. <laughs> and so I, I was so focused on it because I really wanted to do some amazing things. But anyway, from there, I went with Tracy to open up Rubicon restaurant mm-hmm. with Junia Neaporn from New York. 
And uh, Rubicon was a really great restaurant. I worked with Tracy for four years. And then by 1997, I opened up my first Citizen Cake, which was intended to get out of fine dining and make Mm -hmm. the patisserie and coffee roasting and bread something that honestly the city didn't have anything like at the time. Now, when I go to San Francisco, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many places like that. But it just was such a new concept. And Well, you're a pioneer. We can say that for sure. But before you go too far, you so casually shifted from making people eat your bonbons while watching films to going straight into a restaurant. Like, did you have any moment in time where you were like shaking your head at yourself? Like, how is this transition happening in this way? Like, you had like all these art intentions and then you just like went into a restaurant and just like... No, no, because I mean, I kind of, you know, skipped over the boring stuff, but I I had worked in a film production as a PA. Mm -hmm. I worked in an office job for a small production company. I had worked at a pro camera shop while I was making tarts and pies on the side for little places. This is the juicy stuff, by the way, (laughs) just so you know. This is what we're here for. I rode um, (laughs) a scooter and my girlfriend at the time and I would go deliver them to this little diner, basically, where I made their little pies and tarts. I worked at Williams-Sonoma when I was in college. The original store. Me too. Shout out to Williams-Sonoma. I mean, that was the the original original? store. Yeah. And yeah, like Julia Child used to come in and James McNair and so many people. There was just, it was such a whole different, there were so many food writers in San Francisco that wrote cookbooks and we had all their books. I remember I would just read Martha Stewart's books and Mary Sue and Susan had City Cuisine Mm -hmm. book just out. And um, yeah, you know, my job at Williams-Sonoma actually was, we had a full kitchen in the back and my boss, I'd come to work and, you know, be dusting the shelves or whatever. And she'd say, why don't you just go back in the kitchen and cook stuff? You know, you're such a good cook. And so that's how I would actually sell a lot of equipment because I would be like, today I'm making a lavender blueberry wedding cake and you need all these cake pans and you need like, oh. yes. <laughs> Yeah. See, I did not know we had that in common. I was also a demonstration coordinator and they would let me just like cook whatever. And like, if you can sell this stuff, I don't care what you cook. And I'm like, great. Oh my God. I know. It was so fun. And I I worked with all gay men and it was a blast because I'd be like, oh, I'm making Garth a wedding cake today. And he's like, oh, I was just always wanted to be a June bride. And we were just, it was like the queerest place. It was so much fun. That sounds about accurate. (laughs) Well, it sounds to me like the universe is really just kind of like pushing this world into you because you were you were green in the world. Like you were still out of college. You were young. You were. It's almost as if you didn't figure out you need to figure out what you were, were going to be in life. It was walking through your front door. Mm-hmm. Totally. Like just kind of naturally in it. I've heard a lot of stories since I've been bringing people into the walk-in, but this is the first time where I've heard the story where the food came to you, not the other way around. That's very interesting. Same with the business. I just started working in food and I kept my head down and I paid attention and I obeyed orders really well. I mean, I got basically thrown into the pastry side, but I never only wanted to be a pastry chef because the money was never very good. It still isn't very good. Yeah. I love just learning more and more stuff. So I never, I just never wanted to be sort of only in pastry. And then when I quickly, when I started going to like the early food and wine festivals and stuff, and I'd be like the pastry chef out of 
five, four, three, four, five chefs at an event. I'm like, this is stupid. The cards are like not stacked up for pastry <laughs> chefs, you know? I can right. cook something else. I'll make the entree, whatever. So I just never wanted to be trapped only on the pastry side. I love doing, I love baking. I still bake all the time. I mean. That's cool. Do you think that you're getting into pastry was also happening at a time where people were sort of pigeonholing women into these pastry roles and maybe subconsciously you were also just into rebelling against that because innately you knew that you also had the capacity to do other things and probably other women did too or was it just kind of you know like eh, I can do other things and I'm just going to do other things she didn't think twice about it I don't think I've really thought twice about it and I think that our whole generation of chefs is very much sort of hmm, now why does it have to be that way anymore the truth is it's evolving and been changing. So if we talk about kitchens 30 years ago versus today, I mean, all of mm-hmm. us in this, you know, period of time have been actively changing how to run a restaurant and how to talk to people mm-hmm. and how to be mm-hmm. a human being and how to have some etiquette and be polite. Like it's actively been happening prior to me too. Like when I think about the female chefs that have so been my role models or inspired me. I'm talking about people that were already at the top of their game in 1990. So the fact that like people haven't listened to that voice enough is very frustrating for me because Mm -hmm. it's actually already been. It's already been on the around. Yeah. Yeah. It's already shaping things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like I think about Nancy Silverton and Nancy Oaks and so many people that are like Mary Sue and Susan, they're all like about 10 years older than me, approximately. Man, they've already been doing this for 40 years, you know, or more. Yeah. But, the you know, the thing is, though, the Bay Area and, you know, as I've kind of really dug into my women's chef history, I'm learning that the Bay Area, the West Coast, they are always very pioneering and leading in like thought and deed and action, right? A lot of movements started in the Bay Area. I mean, from the Black Panther movement to, you know, like LGBTQIA plus community rights, a lot of these things kind of spearheaded there. And so it's not surprising that where you were, women were leading, doing, you know, in the 90s when the rest of the world kind of had no clue a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. unless you were in a food town like New York, right? But even New York is still it was so unbelievably male European dominated. Yes. For yes, but much but longer they knew. than California. Yeah, but they knew it existed. Like in the Midwest, a girl growing up in the Midwest like me, I had no idea women were doing that when I was a freshman. If I had known about a Nancy Silverton when I was a freshman in high school, I would have pursued this career a lot earlier, regardless of whether our skin looked the same mm-hmm. or not. Just to know that there was someone doing that thing, I think a lot of women would have been more encouraged into the field at an earlier time. But since you mentioned that and the influence it had on you, tell me about your time running your own restaurants? Like, what kind of leader were you at Citizen Cake? Well, it's so funny because what happened was I had worked for Tracy for a while and all these sous chefs that had worked there had gone on and opened up restaurants. And I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like I dedicated enough time and it just became this, like I said, it wasn't this dream of me owning my own place. It was sort of like, hey, how come people are coming to me at the restaurant to get cakes all the time? (laughs) <laughs> and Tracy even said it one time, she's like, it's getting crazy because every weekend you're just in here making wedding cakes. And I thought, you know, I should just open my own shop because I didn't know where to send people to get 
certainly anything that I was, I was making stuff that just didn't look like any other cake. And, um, mm-hmm. I met a guy who was, uh, had owned a couple, co-owned a couple restaurants and small restaurants in San Francisco. And he was building a place south of market that where he was going to roast coffee because he roasted coffee as a hobby. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. We could do, you know, he wanted a bread thing. And I said, well, yeah, we can, I mean, but bread, San Francisco has a lot of bread. So I was like, but we can do bread and, uh, but we got to make cakes. Cause if we make at least one person's birthday cake every day of the year, what if we make 10 birthday cakes? What if we make, you know, so anyway, that, he was like, oh, that's a good, that's a really good idea. That's a good point. So we opened that Halloween, mm-hmm. 1997. And I had a small crew. I had my, one of my pastry cooks at Rubicon came with me, Sarah, and we worked together for 13 years and it was probably the longest chef relationship I've had. And, um, I had like about eight employees to start with. And then Citizen Cake grew. We moved to Hayes Valley a year later. And then it was a pastry shop and a full restaurant and bar. And it was near Mm -hmm. Jardinier, which was Tracy's next restaurant. And it was near the Symphony and Opera and City Hall. So Mm -hmm. I have to tell you too, it was very dynamic being at City Hall because, you know, eventually, and I always was working around politicians in San Francisco. I did a lot of fundraising for different mayoral candidates over the years. And then when mm-hmm. Gavin Newsom was the mayor, who is now the governor of California, his team would come in all the time. Um, Kamala, when she was um, district attorney, actually came mm-hmm. into Citizen Cake all the time. And I did a fundraiser for her way back then. Wow. It was just a really cool hub because here's a place called Citizen Cake and it's near City Hall and all the theater and stuff is there. And so people <laughs> would come in and... yeah. We had that location for 10 years and that really put Citizen Cake on the map. I mean, mm-hmm. the, it was immediately very popular back in the old location, um, south of Market. But then when we, we moved to Hayes Valley, it was a big deal and it changed the face of Hayes Valley. Hayes Valley is a very expensive, trendy place to be. And at that time, it wasn't. It was still kind of changing. But I loved it that it was near all that stuff. And then we opened up a little satellite place called Citizen Cupcake. So then we were starting this sort of ex- growth and expansion. And um, Citizen Cupcake was kind of like right before the cupcake craze. It's so funny. I had this place called Citizen Cake, but I, and I love the architecture of cakes and building them, but I'm not somebody mm-hmm. who wants to sit down and eat cake all the time. And I really don't want to eat cupcakes <laughs> because I don't, because that's interesting. <laughs> I know because Americana desserts are way too sweet for me. And mm-hmm. I don't like the idea of just cake and frosting that much. It needs to have a lot more contrast for me. So I, I've loved injecting them with caramel and passion fruit or rose filling or well, so many things. And then, yeah, so making them more, you know, of a dessert. I, I came yes. from plated desserts and fine dining. So I mm-hmm. I just wasn't somebody who like wanted to decorate cupcakes all day, you know? Right. And so juggling that. Food television's happening. I opened up another restaurant called Orson in 2008, but that was a really bad year to open a restaurant. <laughs> and it, and I tried to hold on to all three of those projects for a couple more years. And uh, mm-hmm. But by 2011, our landlords doubled the rent, so we had to try to move it. And that was right before we opened the other restaurant. So financially, it was like we were really taking too much. I was taking too much risk. And I... I learned a lot in those few years because I also gave a lot of my power away and it was just rough. It was rough, rough, rough. And I finally left San Francisco in 2012 and moved to New York and opened a couple of restaurants for other people there. The wall slide. 
That's very interesting. These are little tidbits that I didn't know. It's always great to kind of get like the in the the backstory about restaurants opening and closing and lots of chefs are very skittish about talking about that. But since we're kind of moving into the next segment of our conversation, which is called the wall slide, it sounds to me like you were having some kind of like wall slide moments, you know, Um like you said, you were juggling three locations, you were doing food TV, and you were giving away power. That's a very profound statement to say, because I consider you like one of the most powerful women I know and strong, you know. So to hear you say that, I was taken aback. Well, So let's talk about that. Like what was happening at the time? Tell me about the moment you were sitting there and you were like, this is too much. Like the something's got to give. What was that day like? What was what happened? Well, it's so um, it wasn't like one day, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I had that kind of one day where I was like, okay, enough. But maybe that was a few days. And I have been working very hard on writing a book about all this because I've had to kind of go back. And the only reason why anybody should write a memoir is because you have to try to understand things that happen at a certain point in your life and like analyze Mm. it to death, you know, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and try to figure out if you've actually learned or come out of it. And I feel like sometimes I'm still, you know, I don't like being stuck in anything, but, Mm -hmm. and also something you just said too, you know, like a lot of chefs, I think like your restaurant is your identity in a lot, or it can be your identity. And, um, I was so identified with San Francisco. I was born there. I spent most of my life there. I spent 25 Mm -hmm. years there. I helped put San Francisco again on the food map. I mean, I just helped so much in the pastry world with Citizen Cake. And um, Citizen Cake was like my baby. I didn't Mm -hmm. have, I never had kids. So it was, it felt like my, my baby. I also was in a long term relationship through a lot of that time. And, uh, Somewhere in there, I think I, I gave uh, some power, some equity in the business to my life partner. And mm-hmm. when I look at that now, I think it was a huge mistake for uh, multiple reasons. It wasn't good for my relationship. It really wasn't good for my business because my people didn't respect that concept. Mm-hmm. And I, now I get it because like we're talking about somebody who had no business in the food business. Had mm-hmm. never experienced it. So couldn't understand why we had to do things certain ways, you know? Yes. I also gave some power to uh, different chefs that uh, worked with me. And I'm thinking about three specific male chefs. Of course, I hired them all, but one of them really turned on me at one point. And I don't know. I think part of the problem for in my this chunk of time that I was in is like, here I was a known pastry chef. But I was running two restaurants and this cafe. Mm-hmm. First of all, I had I would run into male chefs sometimes, not all of them, and mm-hmm. because I'm only talking about a handful of people out of hundreds. But I would run into some people that didn't like the female boss. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would it's something not something I would pick up right away, but I would eventually learn that in their behavior. Or some people really wrestled with like what the pastry chef is a boss. That's just weird. Like the chef is a boss, not the pastry chef. So it's kind of like I had two things, you know, I definitely experienced homophobia sometimes with my employees, which is so, it sounds hmm. so weird today, but it's actually true. And it's so, you know, 
Yeah. When other people talk about the struggles they face with the way people interact with them, whether you're a different color or your mm-hmm. um, gender or your sexuality or so many things. It's like, yeah, yeah it, is, it exists out there and, and it's deeply threaded in some people. And it's very disappointing. You know, I'm yeah. somebody who feels like I've also experienced ageism too, which is like really because like to go from being like this pretty much superstar chef in their thirties to, you know, becoming 45, 48, heading towards 50 like having my own anxieties about that, but then to like have people start to treat you like you're a mother or you're an old mama. And it's like, I'm not your mother. (laughs) I don't want to be a mother. And, you know, why do people feel that that sort of treatment is relegated to a certain title? You know, like you should actually be more respectful to your mother. Like if you think of me like your mother, like then... Is that how you treat your mother? You, I, should, I, I probably right. ought to have used that line more, you know? Like, is that how you treat your mother? Is that how you treat your mother? <laughs> yeah. Yes. That says a lot about the person. Yeah. But, it, you know, I think like, um, you know, those were some really hard times for me. I definitely yeah. had to sort of accept myself. You know, I, I couldn't doubt myself, but I probably at different times, I certainly felt like a failure when I had mm. to let go of these restaurants. I just mm-hmm. felt like I had tried everything and I really yeah. worked my ass off in them. Like I didn't just mm-hmm. randomly show up. I'm the I'm person who invented most of the food stuff. I'd let, if people were super creative, I'd let them run with menus and stuff and, um, yeah. and give them the credit. I never took anybody's, you know, I'd always, if you read my books, I'd tell you where every idea or collaboration comes from, or I love somebody's mm-hmm. dish. And so here's my twist on their dish or whatever, but I, it just killed me to lose those restaurants. I just, I mean, I, it was so painful. And the last one, the Orson really just, it just financially was just, it sucked the life out of me for years. I'm a food stylist by trade, which means that aesthetics are very important to me. Whether it's food or home decor, I want things that are beautiful, well-made, and tell a story. That's why Room & Board is so great. They focus on furniture and home decor that is modern, well-made, and trend-proof. And they work with family-owned businesses across the country to source the absolute best in American craftsmanship. And get this, more than 90% of their products are manufactured in America. Even better, they offer free design services over the phone, through video conference, or in their stores. Their experts can help with any project, big or small, from picking a pillow to creating a 3D rendering of your space. Go to roomandboard.com to learn more. When Jim Cook founded Samuel Adams in 1984, he knew he had a good idea, a great beard, and a thick skin. But that didn't mean it was easy to get the business off the ground. I realized after a while that it took me 20 calls to get one customer. So I got 19 rejections for every one acceptance. So every time I got a rejection, I'd say, wow, I just got 1 20th of a customer. 
I've only got 18 more to go. And that kept me going. So when he did find success, Jim knew he wanted to help other entrepreneurs chasing their dreams too. That's how the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program was born. Since 2008, the program has helped thousands of passionate food and beverage craftspeople succeed so they can do what they love. For more information or to apply, go to www.brewingtheamericandream.com. All right, so you had to make these major shifts and I can imagine, you know, like I'm sitting here seeing you and I can still see the feelings, you know, behind those decisions. Um, How did you begin to like overcome and um, recoup? How did you do that? It sounds for me, I'm like, I need to go to therapy. That's kind of like my answer for every single thing. Like I'm thinking about this thing too much. Maybe I need to talk to a therapist about it. I did. I talked to a therapist a lot in San Francisco at that time. And that helps me get to this point of like, oh my gosh, I don't have to take all this. I can put a stop to it. And that's what I had to do. So then I, I was just like so burnt out and I was eating uh, pizza a lot at this place in San Francisco. And I met this woman who wanted to open a pizzeria in Brooklyn. And then she's uh, was a fan of mine from watching next iron chef and me coming in second place around that same time against Jeffrey Zakarian. And, um, Somehow we just started talking and I said, you know, I would move to Brooklyn and open a pizzeria that I've been making pizza my whole life in all these different restaurants, you know, more California style. And um, she's like, well, you got to get certified Neapolitan because I want to open a Neapolitan place. And I was like, that sounds great. Okay. So and then I, I mean, I ended up moving to Brooklyn, mm-hmm. opened this pizza place, got two stars from the New York Times for pizza, which is pretty great. I loved it, actually. It was fun because I was just a chef again, not an owner. Just in the mm-hmm. wood burning oven. Yeah. Making good pizzas and pasta. And I had a great sous chef there too. I just, I couldn't not be an owner because I'd watched the owner pretty much just take the money and run. And it was not a good scene. And then I ended up opening a restaurant on the Upper West Side for a wealthy kid from Mexico City who I feel like, you know, I had spent all these years in the business. And here's a kid who wanted to open a food truck, but got a a property on the West side was beautiful, but that guy had never worked in the food business. And I just thought, what am I doing with my life? I keep meeting these people that just have no business in the business. And this is very common in places like New York too, where people just open up restaurant because they got money. That just didn't work out so well. And I opened it and I left about seven months later and then I took a time out, had spent some time yeah. with friends who were in the life coaching department. And um, I was just brain dead by that point. And I just yeah. needed to just chill out. And luckily I had a couple of consulting jobs already lined up. And then I just started, I, honestly, though, that year after leaving that restaurant, I, I started for the first time, I was like, oh my God, I live in New York. I've never like, there were all these things I had in my head about what I wanted to do in New York, like walk around, do all the, you know, stuff that tourists like to do, like walk around and just window shop and go to the theater and museums and stuff. And of course, those first two years there, I hadn't done any of that. I was just working. Right. I finally was like, oh, I can go see everything and smell the roses Mm -hmm. for real and take my dog for a walk. And then I started writing some 
stuff down to sort of begin this book journey that I've been on. Mm-hmm. And then just like a couple of years later, I, I mean, I started running more. I started really focusing on almost like daily yoga. But I've also been very athletic my whole life too. And I started running just a lot more. By 50 years old, I ran my first and only full marathon. I ran, I've run a lot of half marathons, but I ran the New York Marathon in 2016. Wow. Wow. Yeah, which was actually, that is one of the greatest accomplishments of my life, honestly. I know people who don't run marathons don't really understand that, but it's just much more than a half marathon. You know, it's just, yeah. And especially like at 50 years old, you know, it's, it's challenging. Okay. So, you know, I love that you really have, you know, leaned into things like yoga and cycling, not only using it for a good cause and philanthropy, but like you're really using it to kind of hold yourself together. I'm thinking I need to add some of that kind of thing in my life too. And particularly, I heard you have some swords, and I'm totally into that. Tell me a little bit more about that. What are you doing with those swords over there? You know, I've been doing this kind of sword fitness workout for the past 15 years. I had a trainer in San Francisco um, who started this sword fitness thing called Junction. It's based on martial arts. It's based on Mm -hmm. some different forms of ancient sword fighting Mm. from Japanese to Korean, you know, basically like samurai sword fighting. I've been actually teaching classes to chefs here in uh, Los Angeles. And so we meet at either the beach or a park and I bring a golf bag full of these wooden swords. And um, it's just like a really different uh, mind and body practice. And uh, it's very grounding and very empowering. We use a weapon as an extension of our core. We, mm-hmm. It's a peaceful practice. We're not trying to go out and fight, but you know, if somebody was going to try to fight me, I have one under my bed. I actually have a real sword too. So it's just, I love it's it. no joke. I think I might start doing some junction zoom classes. I will be there. It's a good chef workout. It's a natural extension of where we come from. I love that. You're a chef and a samurai. I love that. That's exciting. You, you just, I mean, you never cease to amaze me, chef. That is, I love it. I love it. I'm totally into it. Well, it sounds to me that that even though you really had these extremely um, mentally and emotionally tumultuous happenings in your life, that you were able to work through with some help and also just like some life practices such as your, you know, maybe recentering on your health. Because I know as a former collegiate athlete and then looking into like my adult years and how work and just adulting has always become such a priority over even my health at times. I would imagine that making that shift made a huge difference. And probably, let's be frank, it probably saved your life, like your mental life, emotional totally. life, right? I mean, I'd like everybody who goes to culinary school or for more food television to focus on this idea that chefs, anybody around food needs to, I mean, the reason why we're in it is we're like trying to pay attention to what ingredients we're putting into things mm-hmm. and then what we're putting into our bodies and how that's affecting the planet. I mean, that's every, yeah. that's on everybody's tongue these days. And so it's like, we need to be real about that. Like we need to like really say, does that need more fat in it or does it need more greens? Yes. Like we need to seriously look at that and what its impact on everything around us. And we need to like just develop better habits as chefs, we just, you can't expect people to work 
30 years in this business and not have some yeah. kind of addiction problem yes. or just a heart attack or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. or yeah. some abusive behavior because unless they have some other outlet. And, and I feel like sports is a really, even if it's not an extreme sport, but like if it's just yoga, I mean, something to counter the stress because yes. the stress is intense. In life in general, you know, like I think that's good advice across professional genres. Just like I'm learning so much. We talk very candidly about our health in our personal conversations. And I've been dealing with ovarian cancer off and on since 2016. And, you know, I'm getting ready to have a very radical surgery. And I'm thinking about what my life can be like after surgery, right? Because first, I really want to save my own life. You know, so that's my priority. What does that look like? You know, and I'm thinking about how I can actually come back to work after being off for a few weeks and start new habits. Like it's dawning on me right now. Like I no longer really need to or should be booking my day every hour to hour from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., you know, Mm -hmm. and like I'm going to get a clean slate. Once I'm in healing and recovery and I can really make some solid decisions about how I want to go throughout the rest of my very long life that I'm anticipating. Okay, so you have dipped back into your artistic side because we did a little conversation for a documentary that you have created. Yeah. I don't want to spill too much about it. Maybe you're saving that for later, but you are moving a little bit more into your artistic side during COVID. That's great. Yes, the documentary uh, is called Sorry We're Closed. Uh-huh. We've spoken to chefs live and virtually yeah. from coast to coast and, and in between about how great food-focused people and chefs are around dealing with crisis. It's how it all started. Mm-hmm. And then when COVID hit, we thought, oh my gosh, we've got to get out here and start filming everybody because this is a conversation we had already started planning a film around. So many things have happened this year with Black Lives Matter and this insanity of the leadership in the country or the mm-hmm. anti-leadership or whatever you want to call it. I feel like when we just started shooting this documentary, it was right when protests were happening. And so we got mm-hmm. a lot of footage of restaurants being closed up and chefs trying to like come out of COVID. And now we're dealing with all this. And um, then yeah. the injustices and people, you know, taking it to the streets, which is like, thank God people are doing that. Yeah. But also people don't need to be gunned down by policemen. So come on. Yeah. Just so much. So we've had yeah. so many great conversations talking with different chefs. And we all knew this, that the restaurant industry is so fragile. Mm-hmm. But to really see it surface and have the government still not being so indecisive about how to help the restaurant industry, the biggest, you know, the second biggest employer in the country. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's like, it's such a big deal. So this yeah. documentary does capture a lot of the um, emotion and wrestling that chefs have had to deal with from coast to coast and in between with racism, with gender inequities, yeah. with pay. Classism, everything. all the isms. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, some people want to just cook no matter what and make food for frontline workers. And some people are like, that's not why I got into this business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. And it's a good conversation piece in general. Like, what of this experience do we want to extract for good and keeping? And like, 
what of it do we need to just trash you know like just throw the whole thing away you know and i think as with any type of um huge chunk of history that will happen in this country there's something from it that we need to hold on to and even if sometimes it's the worst parts you know to like so it's like that muscle memory, you know, like we need to hold on to some of that bad muscle memory so that we don't ever get close to revisiting it. Yeah. We'll get that physical reaction of like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't know what's going to come of the restaurant industry, but I am really, really interested to see the kinds of conclusions that people will come to after watching Sorry We're Closed. I think it's going to be so much more of a tool for healing the industry in a way. And I'm really excited that you have committed your time to that work. Yeah. That is, that's pretty dope. That's pretty I mean, dope. it is, I don't think I, I have told you this, but to be honest with you, like when COVID hit, it's a, it's a very personal film for me because when it hit, it just made me think about the stock market crash of 2008. Mm-hmm. And because I had wrestled with my own restaurants at that time and tried to hold on to them for three more years and make things work and make a different menu because what I was doing in 2008 and after the fallout where people only wanted to spend money on hamburgers and French fries and comfort food became this thing that I was not remotely really excited about at the time. Like I was much more Mm -hmm. into modernism. And so, you know, to have to shift into like whatever that means, comfort food um, in San Francisco and just financially dealing with all of it. It just like, honestly, when it hit this year, I was, I really had like a panic attack. I was like, Mm. what are my friends going to do if they all lose their restaurants? Like, this is not going to be healthy for any of us. And I I want them to know that they can recover from it. But at the same time, I was like, but am I actually recovered from it? Because sometimes I want to open a restaurant and, you know, the kind of people, I guess, that I've attracted as in, business partners have been Mm -hmm. people that shouldn't be in the, in the business, like I've said. So I just thought this is scummy. Like what if everybody just has to kind of like scrape through and it's just going to be awful. And I thought there's got to be a better way to do the food system. So Mm -hmm. hopefully this just allows us to, yeah, look at what's broken and how to do things better. Yeah. And I honestly just want, chefs to know that they can still be involved in food and not have to be trapped with their identity of their restaurant. Like they can Mm -hmm. continue to do things in food and and really think about what's important. And for me, like what's important is talking about food systems and what's really broken and how to work on that and fix it. Yeah. Well, that's, hmm, that's a lot. A moment in the walk-in. Okay, Elizabeth, this is a part of the conversation called a moment in the walk-in. Now, normally, this is where we have a letter written from a listener to our guest to ask for advice. Sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's professional. But today, I'm going to be the person to take the moment in the walk-in with you because I have some pressing questions. So I have some friends in our industry who, young chefs, who have had to close their restaurants right before COVID. Chef Naisha Arrington had to close her place, which was one of my favorite restaurants. Chef Kiki Arnita in Philly had to close. Poi Dog. There are lots of young people. Kwame closed his place in D.C. 
What advice would you give to young people who have really been impacted by COVID and had to close their restaurants, um, who clearly have at least another 25 to 30 years of working (laughs) in food under their belt? My friend who is a life coach sat me down after that last restaurant uh, that I opened in the Upper West Side. And she said, man, you're just so good at opening places and making it happen. And if you could divide up your time, like don't think about money. So if you can divide up your time, like, and if it's all around food, like I'll just give you me as an example. I said, I don't remember exactly the percentages, but I basically on a whiteboard had to write, here's all the things that I do in the food business. I cook, I write, sometimes do television or media and consulting. Mm -hmm. So she said, well, I want you just to assign percentages of what you'd like to spend your time doing. Forget about like how you're going to make money. Mm-hmm. And so I had to kind of go, okay, well, I'd rather spend more time doing TV and media and consulting. And then I basically heard myself or saw myself write down that I only wanted to spend like 10 to 20% of my time in physically in restaurants. So then it made me have to do some work and think, Okay, now how am I going to do that? Because if I worked in a, as an executive chef again, I wouldn't be in a restaurant 20% of my time. I'd be in, my, in the restaurant 90% of the time. I think I had to separately put in extracurricular things. Like I need to exercise and all that stuff. But like if it's just work, like just make yourself go, what is it that I want to do in food? Right. And so then I had to think, well, okay, come to think of it, if I've squeezed in television and media in my busy days and I've squeezed in consulting to make some money, you know, here and there, but have to like hustle to get those assignments done. And then what if I spent quality time on those things I'd rather spend more time in? And then, Mm -hmm. so I can do charity events and I can also still do food and wine festival events because I'm not a prima donna. I don't need a whole crew of people to show up and cook for me. But so like, I think that the message is that you don't have to spend your whole food career in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Restaurants are amazing. I mean, it's an amazing project. It's an, you know, build your own stage and make your own food, and people still will come in and order a Caesar salad with grilled chicken on top. <laughs> and is that what you want to do the rest of your life? No. Right. So, yeah. So there's a lot of different um, things you can do. I think once you get your restaurant time in, you can also spend time thinking about that and maybe. You know, we could always come back into restaurants at any time, but maybe you just do it in a different way. Yeah. That is honestly what is one of the sort of best upheavals about this year is that we can Mm -hmm. say, did I really like what I was doing in that restaurant? That's great advice. I could definitely stand behind that. People are always telling me, you're all over the place doing all the things. And I'm like, yeah, because I can, you know, the beauty of it is that I don't ever have to do any one thing. Doing one thing never got me as far as doing many things, right? And just kind of never saying no to the opportunities that may have been slightly unconventional, you know? Like, as long as the food is involved, I'm pretty happy. And I I hope that my chef friends really um, appreciate that advice you gave and take heed to it, you know, to know that you can center yourself in any of the parts that you enjoy the most and it doesn't have to look like what we're told it looks like we can decide what it looks like elizabeth it's been so great having you in the walk-in with me you shifted my life in so many ways more than i ever tell you and being able to work with you and know you personally and 
see you do the work that you do. I've seen you make very hard decisions. Um, and now I know where you have garnered the strength to do so. And it just leaves me even more in awe of you. I'm excited about what's to come for you. And I, I love how you're leaving such an impression on all of us in the culinary industry in your very unique way. And I'm looking forward to more from you. I can't wait to see what happens from here. Sounds like you're just getting ready to burn some rubber. So uh, <laughs> let's let's put pedal to the metal, as they say. Oh, I like um, it. And uh, let's do it. So it's good to have you in the walk-in. Thank you so much. I love you deeply. It's such an honor. Thank you. I just love speaking with you. And uh, I just always learn more because... Well, we just all have a lot of different work to do. And, you know, yeah. I think together we just, we'll just do a better job. We will. Or we'll come in the walk-in and talk about how we're doing a horrible job and try and figure out how to fix it. <laughs> That's right. To learn more about Chef Elizabeth Faulkner's work, visit her website at elizabethfaulkner.com. You can also find her on Instagram and Twitter at Chef Faulkner. And if you're looking for a personalized virtual cooking class with Chef Elizabeth, check out 100pleats.com. And lastly, please consider joining Bake the Vote at bakersagainstracism.com. We put all of that and more in the show notes. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's the walk-in at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like the walk-in and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, El Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Hen Margolis. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Caroline Rickard, and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strawin is our intern. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Nuku, Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.